Hi, everybody. I'm Kevin O'Donoghue, licensed mental health counselor. And I'm Nasima Diane Deemer, licensed massage therapist and trauma specialist. And this is The Positive Mind. Where we bring you ideas, concepts, guests to help you lead a more positively-minded life. We have a guest today. Scarlett Lewis is with us. If you haven't heard from her, she has created something called Choose Love Program. And we're excited to talk to her about her program. You know, have you ever had a moment that has totally changed your life? Maybe everything was leading up to this moment. Years go by, nothing changes. Then something happens to you and your whole life is changed. Your whole psychology has changed. Your whole meaning and purpose in life has changed. Well, that has happened to Scarlett Lewis when her son, Jesse Lewis, was one of the victims at Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting in Newtown, Connecticut on December 14, 2012. Eight years ago, some beautiful things have come out of that, and we're going to talk about that today. And we want to congratulate you first, Scarlett, on your work, but also uh, express our condolences so much about this tragedy. How is the tragedy still with you? Thank you so much, and it's an honor to be on your show. Thank you for providing a platform for helping me spread my message. It's changed everything. Everything about who I am and what I do and my priorities right after my son's murder, I knew that I would not ever be going back to any semblance of my previous life. And I had no idea what that looked like. And I can tell you, and I know that anyone else out there that's listening that has lost a child, um, they know as well everything changes. It it changes your perspective on everything that happens every day, all day long. It's not necessarily worse. (laughs) Um, I remember my aunt who lost a very young child to cancer. And I remember her saying, and I was young, after I lost my child, everything became black and white for years and then she remembers just starting to learn to see color again and so i i thought when jesse died i wonder when my world's gonna go black and white but that's not what happened to me what happened was everything was uh, more colorful more vibrant um more full of life around me and i really um I really changed the way that I lived as well. I I, I went from living my life for myself (laughs) to living my life for others. And that has made all the difference as well. Wow. That's such an unusual response um, for the world to take on so much more color in the process of grief. You know, when a, when a tragedy like this happens, have you thought about that? How did that happen for you? I'm sure you were uncharacteristic, um, uh, that's an uncharacteristic response. I'm wondering, have you looked into that and really, you know, examined how did that happen for you? Because it's led to such great things and we're going to talk about those things, but what an unusual response. It has. I mean, I, I was determined from the beginning to not be a victim of this circumstance. Uh, I wanted to model for my surviving child who was 12 years old at that time, how to navigate what happened to us in the best way possible. I wanted to grow from it. I wanted to live life to its fullest. I wanted to 
continue to experience joy and, and I wanted to have a good time. And I was determined to do that. And I wanted that for my son. And I mean, I, I practiced being present uh, before Jesse's murder. So I, I always tell people that I speak to, this is the way to live your life with the fewest regrets. I, I practice this. Mm-hmm. I, I, tried to be as present as possible with my boys. So I read to them every night. We played games, physical board games. We we didn't have a TV because I didn't want to compete with a TV and lose, frankly. Yes, of course. So, wow. so we didn't even have one. Uh, I was a single mom. I worked full time. I felt like I didn't get enough time with them anyway. I just wanted to have fun with them. So I spent every second with them. And... Uh, so I didn't have a lot of regrets, but I, I actually credit being present with them on that. And so I realized that was the way to live life before Jesse died. And so when Jesse died, I said to myself, even before I knew he was dead, even when I was waiting at the firehouse, I'm going to be present through this experience. experience. I'm, I'm not going to resist it. I'm not going to avoid it. I'm going to just take it all in. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to grow from it. I'm going to be a model, whatever it looks like for my son. And so I started that process before I even realized Jesse was dead. I didn't think he would. I mean, first of all, I didn't really take it seriously <laughs> when, I, I mean, even when I heard that there'd been a shooting wow. and nothing can ever happen to your child. That's reserved for, you know, the people that are on the Correct. cover of People magazine. Right. So it, those things like that don't happen to people like me. Yes. So I never, but you know, I had, I did start thinking about, well, what if it did, how would you handle it? And so I, I had my own path and I actually had a therapist that visited me early on, like within days. And she actually knelt down and put her hand on my knee and said, look, I lost a son too. And, and so I was like, oh my God, this was the first person I'd actually spoken to who'd lost a son. And my eyes went to her and I said, what did you do? How did you survive? And she said, well, I'm here to tell you that it never gets better. You know, my son was killed. I don't know. It was, it was 15 years prior or okay. quite, quite a while okay. prior to, to that time. And she said, it doesn't get better. And I just went like that. I just put my hand up in front of her face. From a therapist, and I said, yeah. stop right there. Stop. Because I knew enough to say, that's your experience. That's not going to be my experience. I'm going to have a vastly different experience. I think I realized right then and there that I was going to have to create my own experience. And it was up to me because <laughs> this was the help I was getting. Yeah. No, thank you. Yeah. But <laughs> you it know, is often I, the case, I, isn't it? It's so true for most parents and most people. And I would say, you know, you were prepared for a trauma. It sounds like you really gave your boys your full attention and engaged them. And you, you, you left nothing on the table with them and with Jesse. So, so often parents don't have that contact with their child that that you probably you know that you did have so that when a tragedy comes to such a parent there is tremendous grief and loss i'm i'm curious when you started to practice this presence and where that came from for you that's a great question because i think i started practicing a couple of years before jesse's murder and i had new girlfriends they introduced me to louise hay yeah. who 
is kind of a positive psychology person. She talks yeah. about affirmations. She talks about changing a negative thought to a positive thought. This was a new world for me because I have been like everybody else. I was, I allowed my negative bias to run my day to day. I spent my hour driving into work complaining with to you know other girlfriends about things that were going on in my life i was given the opportunity and i just ate it up to be more positive i practiced that i realized that it was a practice in my life and so i was strengthened somewhat moving into this i i also have a tremendously strong faith in my faith we are going to see each other again. And I had incredible signs indicated that that was 100% the case, including seeing Jesse's message that he wrote on our kitchen chalkboard yeah. sometime shortly before he died that said, nurturing, healing love. Um, those words were phonetically spelled. From a six-year-old. Uh, written like, yeah, yeah. I mean, he was six years old. People say to me, oh, did you walk around saying nurturing, healing, love? Absolutely not. You know, I was a single mom rushing to work in the morning, getting my boys to daycare, having them shipped to another daycare because it closed later. I mean, I never said those three words. And, and I believe that there are a, a spiritual awareness that he had that he wasn't going to be on earth for very much longer. And he wanted to leave a message of comfort for his family and mm. friends. And it was a mission for me. I knew that if the shooter, if, if, if Jesse's murderer had been able to give and receive nurturing, healing love, the tragedy would never have happened. It was as simple as that. And it was up to me to figure out how to get that message out there and to be part of the solution. Can you talk a little bit about, um, Adam Lanza and, and how you processed forgiving him? Because, uh, I mean, if, if there was ever a reason never to forgive somebody, um, killing a six-year-old would be one of them. Uh, I'm just really curious how you how you manage that. Killing 26 year 26 years 26 old. 26 year olds. <laughs> I know, right. but... And six educators. Yeah. You know, here's the thing. I, I was never angry at him. I knew intuitively that someone that could do something so heinous had to be in a tremendous amount of pain. I, I, I knew that intuitively. I, I, I hurt people hurt people. And yeah. I wondered how he got to be that way. And what happened in his life that created because because people aren't born mass murderers, there's no mass murder gene. So what happened in Adam Lanza's life, he went to the same school that my son did Sandy Hook Elementary School. Yeah. He was, he was raised in our community. What happened in his life that got him to the point when he was 21 years old that he thought the only way out was to off-put as much pain as he could on other people that he had on himself and then take him, he killed his mother before he left that morning. And then he, he perpetrated one of the worst mass murders in U.S. history. He knew what he was doing. He'd gone to that school. He shot, he was prepared. He shot his way through the glass doors. He made a left down the hallway where the first grade classrooms were. Yeah. He knew what he was doing. 
how does somebody get to the point where they can do that? And that's really, I felt compassion for him. And I wanted to find out how something like that could happen. And then, and then I'm watching like everybody else, everyone's blaming Adam and his mom. Of course. And, you know, they're responsible for sure. Adam's mom wanted to make a connection with her child who was on the spectrum. And the way that she did that was through guns. Was that a mistake? Well, yeah, it turned out to be one. And she definitely paid for it with her life. But wait a second. Okay. If it, if it really was all Adam Lanza's fault and all his mother's fault, then what about the times that it happened before Columbine, Beaver Creek? How about the Aurora movie theater? How about all the other school shootings that had happened? How about the University of Texas at Austin from yes. the 60s? I mean, wait a minute. Is that all their fault? And then now, almost eight years later, uh, we have one school-related shooting per week. Um, we, what In about the country? Yeah. Is that Adam Lanza's fault and his yeah. mother? Like that just didn't make any sense to me. That was way too easy. It was like putting that whole thing in a box and saying it was their fault and then having a, a convenient target to put all of your anger and hatred on. It just didn't work for me. So I'm so, wondering if, if you're, you're practicing presence before this event, you know, so many times when a person is prepared, let's say to go to war, a veteran will go to war and they'll be prepared and then they'll see horrors and they won't have PTSD. And then some veterans will come back and they will have PTSD with the same experiences. So I'm just really curious, do you think that your preparations ahead of time um, made you, uh, you know, made you have like access to forgiveness so quickly? Because I would, yes. I would imagine a, 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 it could take years. It, it did. And that's an interesting thing about forgiveness. Um, because I really didn't know a whole lot about forgiveness. It's interesting because my faith is based on forgiveness, really. I found myself in a position where uh, I, I was talking about forgiveness and people are angry at me for forgiving. And I even had arguments with my father. In fact, we didn't talk for three months because we argued about the definition of forgiveness. And this is something that I wanted to teach. I started this organization very quickly realizing forgiveness is the key to cutting the cord that attaches you to pain. It's taking your personal power back. This is all something that I realized. And our sticky point was he said, well, well, if you forgive, then you have to let it all go. You can't file a lawsuit against the town. You can't, you can't be a part of any lawsuits or anything, because if you truly forgive, then you just let it go. And I said, well, I, I really wanted to get, uh, I really thought about that. And I said, you know, here's the thing. Filing a lawsuit is about trying to get to the core of the problem and to fix it and to force people to take responsibility for mistakes that they made. And I think that, that I can still forgive and I can still hold people accountable. Yes. And I said, wait a minute, what if I was raped and I wanted to 
I wanted to take my personal power back. I didn't want to allow my rapist to have control over my thoughts that impact my feelings, that then impact my behavior. So I wanted to forgive him, but it doesn't mean that I wouldn't hold him accountable and put him in jail. Correct. So, but this was all like really tough lessons to learn. And I, I turned a lot of people off. We don't have a lot of understanding about forgiveness, but I did want to really, even through my own experience, learn more because it only benefits me. And then putting it into our program, it benefits everyone else as well. And who knew there were decades of research behind the benefits of forgiveness to the forgiver? Absolutely. Have you ever seen that film, that documentary, The Power of Forgiveness? I don't think so. Oh, it's a wonderful documentary. I saw it in graduate school, mental health counseling, grad school. And they showed particularly um, a drunk driver and the victim's parents of a drunk driver. They worked at it, and it took them a few years, and the documentary followed them for years. And they came to it through a few years process. Whereas they showed another woman whose son died in 9-11, and she was so fixated on recovering all of every single bone of her son to the point that she was just not sleeping. She was totally obsessed. She could not get any relief that it was killing her virtually. Yeah, And absolutely. just that video showed the power of forgiving, forgiveness. It takes the power back out of the perpetrator and really is a gift to yourself to to get yourself right with life. Now, with that being said, I never really had anger for Adam. Uh, When I saw that message of nurturing, healing, love, I knew that if Adam had the skills and tools to give and receive love, if he had been aware uh, that the tragedy would never have happened. So I felt compassion for him, really. I definitely felt compassion for his mom. I was a single mom, too. (laughs) I I had gone through the same steps she did getting into San Diego Elementary School. I knew the process. I knew how hard it was to get help. So I only had compassion. But that doesn't mean that there weren't other things that I could be really angry about. I was angry about people that literally bragged to the families about opening bank account, a bank account um, a day after the tragedy and raising millions of dollars using our children's images like that, that, that is something I continue to work on my forgiveness for, honestly, Um, people that say that it didn't happen. Uh, that I'm an actress um, hired by the government. Right. You know, that that requires continuous forgiveness. Um, people that made mistakes with Adam and there was absolutely no accountability. Um, I said I took my part of the responsibility after the tragedy, you know, because I was part of Adam's environment. I was part of the community. And this is where he was cultivated into a mass murderer. So I thought maybe by me saying that I take my part of the responsibility for being in this community, and I don't think I ever crossed paths, but I know how powerful we all are now. What we think impacts what we say, and that reverberates out. So I was hoping that when I said I take my part of the responsibility, there are other people that were involved with Adam that would stand up and say, you know what? We take our part of the responsibility. And these are the mistakes that we made so that this doesn't happen again. No one did. I still have to work on my forgiveness for that. 
Yeah, and you do talk about uh, the larger audience uh, uh, and the population of mental health issues as a pandemic virtually. Can you talk? You know, so, you know, this this is a in a microcosm, Sandy Hook, Newtown, uh, of denial and avoidance and and greed and different types of reactions and responses. Is this emblematic? Do you think of a larger cultural issue, cultural problems around mental health? One hundred percent. Yeah, this isn't just happening in Sandy Hook. It's happening all over the country. And in the past seven and a half years, I have seen improvement. But it's been very slow and painstakingly slow. Well, please tell. We want to hear about this. We have a lack of courageous leadership that is willing to step outside of what we have been doing that isn't working and to embrace what is statistically effective. And we know through research does. Go ahead. Tell us. So uh, you say there's been progress in seven years. So let's, let's itemize the progress first. Well, we have epidemics of so many different things um, of mental illness. We have, um, 49.5% of our U.S. youth that will have experienced a diagnosable mental illness by the time they're 18. The majority of that is anxiety. And we know 70% of the kids won't get professional help, so they suffer alone. And and by the way, almost every issue that we're seeing in schools, homes, and then later on in communities can be linked to anxiety. Um, And by the way, this is pre-COVID. These have gotten worse. These statistics are now worse. So whatever I'm saying, I I don't know, double it. I'm I'm being, I'm being um, dramatic, but um, we know that uh, substance abuse was continuing to get worse. Uh, Every year that I've been speaking, by the way, I say uh, we had more deaths from drug overdoses last year than ever before in the history of mankind. And that number is expected to continue to rise. I, it's like I've memorized that because I say it every year and every year the death rate goes up um, despite state mandated programming that every child has to go through um, that, you know, when JT came home, he said, uh, OK, now I know all the names of the illegal drugs. I know their nicknames. Their street names. I know where to buy them and I know how to do them. And I'm like, hmm, wait a minute, this doesn't sound right. And and I know based on, you know, there are some incredible instructors that really make a difference. But overall, those programs are ineffective. We have doubled the rate of youthful suicide in this decade than we had in the previous decade more, twice as many kids in this decade, younger, younger and younger are being hospitalized for suicidal ideation and attempts than in the previous decade. Loneliness, ironically, loneliness, I say ironic because there's so much loneliness going on now in COVID with the isolation. But um, even before COVID, 50% of Americans were saying that they were lonely. And of course, all of the research that we had done on was on how loneliness can negatively impact us physically, mentally, and emotionally, and even lead to an early death. So those, those are the issues. And, and, and the way that we deal with them in schools, uh, anti-bullying programs, 
Um, that's a double, double negative right off the bat. Um, yeah. and, and I actually consider school shootings, hopefully I'm going to knock on wood here, the ultimate form of bullying. Um, but you can't tell me that bullying has gotten better when you have one school related shooting per week and violence. You can just look out even in our society. I think the other day I was just thinking, I was just realizing, oh my God, adults bully each other more than kids do. Uh, I don't know why I just realized that like a week ago and that was like an aha moment, but you have programming that by the way, we spend billions of dollars on that is ineffective. We know that it is. How about our substance abuse awareness programs? How about our youthful suicide awareness programs? And, and we still do it anyway. Um, because it's part of how we normally, it's, it's how we think we're reactive and we have this negative bias. So we focus on the negative and we're reacting to these issues. We're focusing on the issues when social and emotional learning focuses on the cause of the issues. And you cannot be talking about a solution unless you're addressing the cause. Right. So and that's uh, what social and emotional learning does. I mean, let's face it. We are not born with essential life skills that we need to flourish in life. And that is the ability to have healthy uh, relationships and meaningful connections. We're not born with the ability to manage our emotions or to be uh, not just resilient, but to grow through difficulty or to make responsible decisions. These are just to name a few. We have to learn them. And that's what I've been advocating for because I've said that if Adam Lanza had been taught those skills and tools, my son would be alive and so would Adam Lanza. Something that, that I'm curious about is how this concept that we're not really born with these tools, I have a feeling that we are, but we just don't know how to accentuate those tools as opposed to, or that capacity. Born and with the propensity, yeah. but we can learn how to flourish using these skills and tools. And, and, and we can literally, I mean, literally, you, you can learn how to manage your, how to identify, label manage and express emotions. That's so important. And there are 2000 labels for emotions and in a recent study across the country, most adults could only label three. Right. We often talk here yeah. just about five, you know, because that's sad, glad, know. bad and, and scared. <laughs> right. And, um, and I think those are, you know, kind of ways that you can start with children, but yeah, I know there's, there's a whole rainbow but, but of emotions. Is love our nature? I believe that it is. I, I do believe that we are born, we know through science, we're born gravitating towards love. We need love to survive. Um, I, I made a mistake once of talking about the experiments that they did in the rough Russian orphanages with newborns. Right. Remember, yes. they, um, they did not give them love. They right. didn't handle them. And those newborns died. Um, the kids that I told were like, what? Yes. <laughs> I was like, yes. what? Um, but we know that babies gravitate towards love through research that's been done. And so I believe we're not. And this is the Nelson Mandela quote that I share at the beginning of every single presentation I give um, that we're we're taught to hate. And if we can be taught to hate, 
we can be taught to love for love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. And, and, and I definitely believe that I, I see the kids that are in the tier twos and tier threes that are acting out at schools. And it's, it's interesting because when I come to the school and the school is choosing love uh, and the kids hear that I'm there, uh, um, sometimes the, they, they just want to cling to me. And I literally have walked around a school yeah. for part of the day with a child hanging on my leg. And I don't really, and this is like a, 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 I think it was like a fourth or fifth grade boy in one instance. I didn't really know him, but he knew I represented love yeah. and he wasn't getting that at home. And he wanted that. And it's, it's, it's amazing. It's it's just amazing what bringing love into an environment can do. Scarlett, we have so much more to talk about. We're about to take our break. We'll come back and talk about your innovative program, Choosing Love, and its use in schools and its ever-expansion. And I do agree that love is our nature. These things don't happen for no reason. And usually it's because there's a lack of love that... Um, bullying and and hurting others is happening. So we'll talk more about that when we come back. You're listening to The Positive Mind. I'm Kevin O'Donoghue. And I'm Nasima Diane-Demer. We'll be right back. with Scarlett Lewis, who has created the Jesse Lewis Choose Love Movement. We're going to talk all about that, but we wanted to return to this idea of love is our nature, and Nasima has a question. You're talking about schools and how you come in with this program and the kids are just clinging to you. Can't this be state-mandated? What gets in the way of that? I have been advocating for it to be state mandated from day one and have not been successful. Although I will say seven and a half years ago, I, when I would go out and travel across the country and speak to educators and administrators, I was telling them what SDL was. Now it's a buzzword, especially after COVID. So I'm, I'm happy about that. I just think that it takes a long time to change an institution. I think it was set up a uh, hundred years ago to put out factory workers, the chairs in a row and a very organized curriculum. We're focused on test scores and, and data. Uh, And, and we left out how a child is feeling and managing issues that come up in their lives and the humanity of it. And now I think that we're being forced to put that humanity back in because what we're doing isn't working. And those issues that we then set up these, um, extra programs for like anti-bullying and suicide prevention and substance abuse awareness, um, they're not working. And so we have all of this research that shows that social and emotional learning does work and it does reduce and prevent all of those issues. 
Um, and so what I can say is it's out there. Um, you know, I went back to Sandy Hook and I said, did we have an SEL program? And they said, well, we did, but we spent so much money on it. We couldn't afford to train the teachers. Uh, I think it's an important thing to say that, you know, the adults don't necessarily have these skills and tools. At 44 years old, when I first found out about what it was and looked at the research, I realized very quickly, I didn't have these skills and tools. And that's part of how I have been able to manage my grief and my tragedy and my trauma um, and, and turn it around is because I learned these skills and tools and it's helped me as an adult. By the way, why we have programming that's lifespan because you can learn these skills and tools at any age. And now the issue about getting it into schools is simply really courage, the courage to step outside of what we have been doing and to do what we know is in the children's what, best what can a parent? Yes. What can a parent who's just hearing this for the first time do to actualize this in their school district or bring it into their own home? What can a parent do? Because it makes a lot of sense. The statistics about the success of a child that is socially integrated, emotionally integrated, emotionally healthy and mature, their success in life is just exponentially better than than a child that doesn't have that. So what can a parent who doesn't have it in their district do or yeah, in their school? And, you know, those kids even get better grades than test scores. Okay, <laughs> and didn't know that. it reduces and prevents all of those issues. Uh, it can prevent the suffering from starting. So we actually have an advocate program because we've had so many parents um, approach us and say, how do I get this into my kid's school? Um, and so we have a place on our website for parents um, that has, you know, letters and emails that are already written that they can send their schools. What's your email address? For bringing Choose Love in. We have programming that parents can bring into their homes um, that they can start choosing love in their homes themselves. They can learn the skills and tools and they can help teach their kids and they can work with the schools once they bring it just, on. Just say the yeah. web address for, for our audience. Sure. It's chooselovemovement.org. Okay. We have programs for communities because we have police departments choosing love. We have uh, governmental agencies, depart departments of health and human services. We're in corrections. We're in daycares. This is a universal language of love. These are essential life skills. Anybody can learn them at any time. Have you ever encountered someone who's just really resisted this whole idea? Like, like really just said, I, I don't believe in love. I don't believe this will work. Like, I'm just curious if you have any anecdotes about that. Because I imagine there's some real, like, you know, <laughs> yeah. naysayers out there. It's like, choose love. That sounds like so, you right. know, fluffy and, you know, not in, my, not in my kid's school. Not, not in my kid's <laughs> school or not in my town or whatever. I don't whatever. know. Has yeah. that been an experience of yours or, or um, is it not- the opposite? So, so a few educators, just a very few educators for older kids wonder, are the kids going to think this is corny? And guess what? They don't. They want love, believe it or not. And then we had one administrator from a, a religious school system that actually said uh, to, to someone else, not me, um, but it was told to me love are you kidding me that's corny and it's like okay 
Wow. <laughs> well, how about the skills? So, so I would like have it in my hands, like naming the skills. Do you want your child to learn this? Do you want your child to learn that? Do you want your child to learn that? So what are the social and emotional skills? Well, um, it's, it, it, there's so many. Um, the five core components of social-emotional learning are emotional management, relationship skills, responsible decision-making, being aware of yourself, and then having social awareness. Um, and, and those are the five core components in a lot of programs. But I wanted people that accessed ours to have everything <laughs> that was in their child's and in their own best interest in one place. So we included uh, elements of positive psychology. I was talking about the positive affirmations. I mean, things that really worked for me. Uh, we included character development. There are so many incredible character development lessons infused in our program that are necessary. And, um, you know, we, we, we teach everything under these four character values of the formula for choosing love that I'll get into in a moment. But we include neuroscience because in the last few decades, we've learned so much about our brain. And it's phenomenal, even for adults, when you learn the, the just three parts of your brain and what they're responsible for, it gives you so much more control over almost everything in your life. It's amazing. What, what three parts of the it, brain? What three parts? Well, okay. So the reptilian part of the brain, okay. which is responsible for your heartbeat and your breathing. And then you have the mammalian part of the brain, which is where your freeze, fight, or flight part of your brain is, is located. And then you have what we call uh, the human brain, which is the prefrontal cortex. And that's where logic and reasoning reside. And it's really important for everybody out there now to understand that when you're making decisions from your, we call it the numbat brain, which is a cute fuzzy mammal in Australia, but it's your freeze, fight, or flight part of your brain. When you're making decisions from that area, you're making them fear-based. And those fear-based decisions look vastly different than if you're making decisions from your prefrontal cortex um, or your logic and reasoning. And I don't know about you, but I want to be making decisions from my logic and reasoning part of my brain unless I'm running to save my life. Well, something that you you brought up around, you know, grief and and your this therapist who said, you know, her life has been sort of black and white. Um, that's to me as a trauma therapist is that that's that is the trauma brain. The trauma brain is a black and white either or brain. And being able to come into the prefrontal cortex, you get both and you get a whole rainbow of opportunities and choices because you had practiced somewhat before how to sort of be mindful, maybe more in more present, more in your prefrontal cortex, because that's where presence kind of lives. You were able to take this tragedy in a very different way, have that brain online. Because if you don't practice, if you don't know how to get there, it can be really difficult to get there. And your life can really be, you know, this black and white dichotomy that, that, that makes things very narrow and very rigid. I mean, I say a lot of this is awareness, there's something called post-traumatic growth. Yeah. You know, I, to- I said that the majority of the research that we've uh, had 
over our lifespan has been towards how things can harm us and what's bad for us. That's because of our negative bias. But in actuality, the latest research coming in on stress and trauma show that actually the vast majority of us benefit from it. (laughs) We grow from it. Wow, what a different expectation that people have, uh, could have, just with that awareness, just understanding when bad things happen, they're actually challenges and there are lessons in there for you and you're actually going to be shaped and molded by them and you're going to grow from them you're going to be strengthened by them how about setting that expect uh, expectation for our children rather than the expectation that you know that that makes them afraid of things that happen and that and then that makes them resist and avoid uh, bad things, and then we know what that leads to. So we could say that children that are suffering adverse childhood experiences have a potential for tremendous growth because they're they're experiencing a lot of deprivation, and later on, so they could be developing muscles because of this deprivation. I say that when they're steered in a certain direction, that they're capable of growth. That maybe a person that had not that ex- experience uh, wouldn't have access to. I mean, you can see, you know, children of wealthy parents who never had any problems or something, and then they're hit by a trauma, and then it's devastating. And then, yes. as, uh, as opposed to a young person who's brought up in poverty, and they're experiencing tremendous adult traumas, and they're they're growing from it and responding to it in a growth way. So. We, I think you're trying to say that even adverse childhood experiences or any kind of trauma can be a resource for growth down the road later in be. life. It can be. And how about at least offer that opportunity? Yeah, that brings me to when you were talking about the brain. It's something that, that for me is, again, a trauma therapist, somebody who understands the sort of nervous system and how the body works. It's like I never learned this in school. It would have been great for me to have learned this in school to kids, teens, to understand how their brains really aren't functioning fully yet and why and why their impulses can be so strong and how to manage those impulses and and those feelings that come with them. It would normalize so much of what's happening the kids very often get either bullied for or feel terrible about, don't know how to contain it, how to how to manage it in any way, then it becomes a problem for parents and children. One of the things Nassima and I are involved in is an organization called Safe Conversations. And the, the essence of that is to teach people how to dialogue with each other. So you could do it with children that they learn by mirroring and validating another child that they can guess at what the other child is feeling as they're talking. And that puts them in their prefrontal cortex. Can you talk a little bit about empathy as a skill to teach children um, that is tremendously valuable for them later in life or, or even in their education? Empathy is tremendously valuable because it's a necessity for healthy relationships and human connection uh, for us to be able to step into another person's shoes. It's, it's very necessary. It requires courage because it requires vulnerability. It's also a painful process 
empathy lights up the same receptors in your brain as physical pain. So it's a painful process. And so uh, we believe that empathy should be taught alongside compassion as, a, as actually a component of compassion yeah, of because compassion includes the identification and the action component, which is where science says all of the nurturing, healing love that we give out comes back to us. I mean, because in essence, that's what damaged children need the most is empathy. Somebody to recognize, I see what you're, because they often can't even say what it is they're feeling. They can't name the feeling. So an yeah. empathic adult who's capable of saying, oh, you're feeling really rage at XYZ or tremendously sad about XYZ, to be validated and empathized with for the first time, that's you know, what we counselors do all the time. We're trying to help them heal the wounds by knowing that somebody else outside of them understands what's going on. And that takes a lot of courage. And that's the first character value in our formula. But I will tell you that because JT at 12 years old, when he finally went back to school from seventh grade to 12th grade, no one ever asked him about the tragedy. No one spoke about it. And no one mentioned his brother. Terrible. No one. Terrible. And when asked why, they said, well, because... We don't want to remind him. We don't want to make him sad. We, if, if we ever asked him how he was and he said he wasn't okay, then, um, you know, then maybe we wouldn't have the skills and tools. But I think that, you know, because of that, it made JT feel like no one cared about him. And for five years, like, for five years, nobody, five years. Nobody and, asked and by the way, that. probably the best, supposedly the best mental health that money could buy and no one ever spoke to him. And it was all fear based, all fear based. And, and, and he thought nobody cared about him. And I think a lot of kids go through life thinking that nobody cares about them. And what we don't realize and what I learned through the experience with JT is that it's just the courage to say, how you doing? And that's kind of a rhetorical question anyway. You could ask me and I'd say fine and I wouldn't think you'd really care. But if you asked me twice, then I could still say I'm fine, but I would know that you cared. Sure. You know, to have the courage to bring things up. This is part of why we include grief in our program because I learned that we need to learn a lot about grief, that there's a lot of fear around grief and trauma and really, what all that we need to do is just be present with one another. But that takes courage. You need an adult to model it. I mean, I could easily see an adult with 25 kids, pairing them off, having them name what is the other person opposite you feeling. Yeah. Just name what they're feeling and have them and then ask them, can you say more about that? Well, I'm feeling angry because I failed my math test. Can you say more about that? And just right there, the, the the whole world can open up for a kid. For five years, your son didn't get that. It's yeah. a, it's it's an amazing thing. Um, but, something that that's coming up for me too is I'm hearing this like again, like I don't know why I'm taking this this train of thought, but about like what the where the resistance comes from, and I would think like parents, teachers might say we just don't have the time to sit with someone and help them unpack what's happening. We just don't have the time. And with that also don't have the tools or capacity to sit with someone in their 
grief and their pain. You know, it's like you never know. It's like, is it a Pandora's box? You know, will everything just come out and will I be able to handle it? Mm-hmm. So I think it's fear. And, I, and I'll also say, you know, you can read the documentation about Adam Lanza. He was frequently seen in the cafeteria shaking, crying, because he suffered from extreme anxiety. This is in elementary school, by the way, uh, either by himself or being comforted by the janitor. But, you know, you say, yeah, we don't have time. And it's true. There isn't time. But we really don't. We, we don't not, we can't, we don't not have enough time. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. What else are we going to spend our time on? We're yeah. cultivating serial killers, right. honestly. Right. And right. so we really need to make the time. Absolutely. Listen, let's, we only have a few minutes left. Um, we're talking with Scarlett Lewis, who uh, has created the Jesse Lewis choosing love movement. Um, and we have been so grateful for your contribution. Can you talk a little bit about the current moment, COVID-19, the pandemic, and any of these social and emotional learning skills that we could use during this time? Yes, absolutely. In fact, we have a, a whole, we have a new reintegration unit specifically designed to meet educators and students where they are when they come back to school, assuming there is some amount of trauma, assuming that there's grief, just to bring them back to baseline, just so they can be present to even start learning social, emotional learning and, uh, and academics. This is a really difficult time. It's a challenging time. And it's, you know, in our vernacular, we, um, we want to choose love in our decisions for ourselves and our families. And we have a powerful formula that leads us to do that. So this is a good time to introduce it. And I've talked a lot about courage, but it starts with courage. Courage is uh, like a muscle. This is what research tells us. And we can practice it and strengthen it. I have to talk about Jesse's courage when I talk about courage. He he actually stood up to the shooter and saved nine of his classmates' lives before losing his own. For that, he is on the short list for the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is the highest civilian honor. And he was six years old. We all have that capacity. Um, and, and, and it's not always for extraordinary acts of courage. It's every day. It's, it's getting up, being a role model for um, making the right decisions and for for kindness and for showing empathy and for choosing love in your families and and in your classrooms and in your communities. And then that moves us into gratitude, feeling gratitude for what you have. We have 50 to 70,000 thoughts every day, the majority of which are negative and repetitive based on our negative bias. But we can only, and by the way, these make up our perception of our reality. We can only focus on one thought at a time. That means we can only focus on a negative thought or a grateful thought. So there's always something to be grateful for. So we use gratitude in our program as the great mind shifter. And then that moves us into forgiveness. And forgiveness is the key to taking your personal power back. In some situations, it's the only way to do it so many decades of research behind it and people say to me how could you forgive the man who murdered your son and and i say with all that i know and the benefit that i have received and the freedom how could i not 
Why would I want to, to give my power away to a young man who suffered so much uh, and was in so much pain that that was the only way that he could um, get out of it? Why would I want to give him power over my thoughts that impact my feelings, that then impact my behavior and relationships? The only way to take my personal power back is through forgiveness. And then uh, I want to, I, I found healing by having the courage to step outside of my own busyness and distraction and even pain and suffering to help other people. Um, and that's choosing love. And that is literally the path to human flourishing, regardless of what's going on in your life. That can lead you to flourishing, <laughs> to choosing love. And when you're choosing love, you're making the world a better place. When you react with prolonged anger, hatred, and revenge, you're giving your personal power away. You're becoming a victim, and that's the definition of lack of control. And that does not make you feel good. Everyone wants to be in control, and we can take our personal power back through choosing love. We can't always choose what happens to us in life, but we can take our personal power back in how we choose to thoughtfully respond when we choose love as our thoughtful response. Chooselovemovement.org. I have to say, Scarlett, you are a fascinating woman. We could do another hour, I am sure, but uh, this one is almost... Let's keep uh, going. Uh, we could keep going. <laughs> I, it's remarkable how you've converted your grief into this tremendously valuable social tool. You're now reaching close to 2 million people. You're in many, many states. Is it all states you're in? Um, it's all states and 100 countries, and, by word of mouth. Wow, wow, outstanding. Fascinating stuff. You can, again, check chooselovemovement.org. Um, you, when, when's the book coming out? <laughs> I'm kidding. Do you have a book coming? I have a book that's out. It's called, of course, Nurturing Healing Love. It's about the first six months of my journey. And I'm having a second book that's coming out shortly. And that is more focused on the movement to choose love and how it can benefit everyone. Wonderful title for your first six months. Thank you so much for being with us today, Scarlett. Thank you, Scarlett. You're listening to The Positive Mind. I'm Kevin O'Donohue. And I'm Nasima Diane Deemer. And have a good week, folks. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.